Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Slavitsky, and this is your June 2021 AJT Highlights podcast. Welcome, everybody. I'd like to, as always, welcome Roz Manon from Nebraska. And today we have our AJT fellow, Babak Garandi from UAB. And we've got a slate of four articles, three clinical and one basic science. Um, Babak will do the first two, which I'll, so I'll go through the um, titles and the authors, and then we'll get started. So the first two that Babak is going to review is, the first one is by Adler et al., Greater Complexity and Monitoring of the New Kidney Allocation System, Implications and Unintended Consequences of Concentric Circle Kidney Allocation on Network Complexity, with none other than uh, Rich Formica providing an editorial. Then we have uh, Westfall, Westfall's group, the impact of multi-organ transplant allocation priority on waitlisted kidney transplant candidates. And um, Jesse Schuld and Sumit Mohan have an editorial paired to that article. Then Roz will do a, we haven't done a COVID-19 one in some time, so this is Nice to circle back. This is Goffs et al. Uh, navigating the COVID-19 pandemic, initial impacts and responses of the organ procurement and transplantation network in the United States. And um, Tim Pruitt has an editorial there. And then I will finish off with an interesting liver basic science paper by Shono et al. Protection of liver sinusoids by intravenous administration of human muse cells in a rat extra small partial liver transplantation model with an editorial by Hessheimer. And so, Babak, why don't Well, before get we get to yeah. the articles, Josh, first of all, I want to thank you for stepping out of your boundaries of clinical, Josh. To oh, yeah, I'll Josh. try. But also, it's time for us to wish the journal a happy birthday. So happy yeah. birthday, AJT. You're 21. 21. You're now an adult. You can fight, right. vote, drink, smoke, everything. And um, we'll be celebrating at the American Transplant Congress. And we want to wish our, our fellow uh, graduation as well, because this is the last fellowship activity. So we're so glad to have you. Thank you, Roz. Yeah, that was a nice touch. <laughs> Thank you both. So jumping right in. So this is the, the first paper by Adler and colleagues as a personal viewpoint. And in it, the authors write about the new deceased donor kidney allocation system changes that recently went into effect. Um, this is the, as the authors point out, this is the first substantive change um, since December 2014 when the kidney allocation system was implemented at that time. And it basically implemented changes that allowed the start of wait time from dialysis initiation or preemptive listing, whichever is first, incorporation of KDPI and estimated post-transplant survival, and national priority for highly sensitized candidates. And, and these changes were not intended to address geographic disparities, and, those, and so those have remained after um, CAS implementation. And so under the new system that recently went into effect, instead of having 58 donor service areas that were considered local and would have the first right of refusal before regional and then national sharing, the new, new model replaces DSAs with a 250 nautical mile concentric circle around the donor hospital. This 250-mile circle significantly increases complexity in the system for the 237 transplant kidney transplant programs in the country and the OPOs that service them. So prior to this implementation, the authors point out that the median number of, of transplant programs that were considered local that no PO would interact with was three. And that's now uh, increased to a median of 17 programs. And the median number of donor hospitals that are local to a transplant center went from... Uh, 
three and is, uh, I'm sorry, went from uh, increased fivefold from 41 to 194. So previously, kidneys procured at a given hospital had a median of five centers and a maximum of 73 that were considered local. And that's now increased to a median of 23 and a maximum of 73. So pretty, pretty dramatic increase in complexity of those relationships. The increase in the number of transplant center OPO relationships and OPO donor hospital relationships that need to be established and, and strengthened has significantly uh, increased under this new system. So the paper's actually really worth a look because it's accompanied by a couple of figures that really nicely and very dramatically demonstrate this increased complexity. But some of the changes that the authors predict will happen will be an increased number of offers with more time spent evaluating offers um, and therefore a need to reevaluate how and when cross matches are ordered and how the workflow of offers uh, is handled at, at various programs. The introduction of more than one OPO will lead to more handoffs and more the potential for more communication errors. A lack of robust relationships between an OPO and a center may lead to uh, increased discards and an increase in cost related to more travel logistics and tissue typing and physical cross-match requirements can be expected. But on the other hand, they note that donor hospitals will have access to more local transplant centers that have a higher offer acceptance ratio, which could lead to increased local competition, less travel, and less cold time. So I think that they also bring up the point that the increased organ pool for centers may disproportionately benefit centers with resources to managing the resulting uh, increased complexity. So the authors conclude that the new system is likely to reduce geographic disparities, but that early evaluation is needed, not just examining those disparities, but also the many potential unintended consequences that could exacerbate other imbalances. Um, so it's kind of a nice read, sort of looking at a lot of different potentials that may happen. And certainly we're, just as we saw with the uh, cast changes, there's a sort of a bolus effect with any new implementation. I think we're sort of seeing that now in the early phases after it went into effect. I remember being on call at UAB with the old allocation scheme went into effect. And, you know, that bolus was very highly sensitized. I mean, I think we were sort of racing for it, but it just seemed, it was just very stressful, I recall mentally, and I wasn't even the on-call surgeon, I was just the nephrologist, but have you seen an increased volume? I think our volumes here are relatively steady. I don't I don't know that we've actually gone up, and I noticed our pattern or offers has changed for sure. We have definitely seen an increase in offers, particularly marginal offers. Again, this is mm -hmm. early, so it's hard to say what, what is going to happen, but the other challenge that we've seen is that we're seeing a lot of a lot more cold time. I think that has been very frustrating. I I was on call. I think the second week after the uh, system went into effect, and I went to bed thinking I had two kidneys the next day, and I woke up and I had eight because all these centers that had provisional yeses and probably weren't going to take them anyway then coded out, and and so things that would have we would have normally planned for, we sort of had to scramble and get multiple surgeons rooms involved to get them all done. Uh, and, and definitely tough on the weekend where, you know, at any center, the A, you know, the A anesthesia and the B anesthesia team, it's, you know, the backup team. So definitely. any thoughts, Josh? I mean, you, you've already dealt with concentric circles. Yeah. You're over I mean, it. very similar themes. I mean, I think the, the increased flying time, the cold time definitely was a boost in to some degree in our numbers, getting patients transplanted more quickly. That, is what I've seen on the liver side, which is really good, you know, obviously with the um, level of illness of, you know, the top of the list of our patients. But yeah, no, there's a stress on the system, definitely. Um, I think consensus is it's better for 
you know, patients and having more offers and transplant programs, but certainly economic and uh, local kind of stress of the on the program and every, everything that's associated with the transplant program, like you mentioned, like OR time and anesthesia and just all these sort of uh, unintended consequences. So I think you'll not unexpectedly be seeing those in kidney also with this with a similar change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting read. Figure one is definitely worth a look because it really should. I, I loved it. <laughs> yeah. This is, you know, this is an amazing paper because this was free. This is late fall, early winter. They didn't even, this was all predicated data, but it's pretty intense. Pretty intense. More exports, more imports. A lot of movement. <laughs> all right. Well, do you want to move on to the, uh, the multi-organ transplant allocation paper? Sure. So in this paper by Westfall and colleagues, uh, the authors sought to understand how the higher priority that's placed on multi-organ transplant candidates affects the next kidney alone candidate on the matron. So that person that would have gotten that kidney had it not been for the the multi-organ transplant uh, candidate being ahead of them. So the question is an important one because of the increasing use of multi-organ transplants, the center level variation in in their use, and the fact that many uh, multi-organ transplants are performed in the setting of mild CKD or short-term AKI, so that there are a lot of patients who after their transplant are walking around with three functioning kidneys. Um, so the study used uh, OCTN data from 2002 to 2017, and they identified donors who had both kidneys recovered, one of which was allocated to a multi-organ transplant recipient and the other to either a kidney alone or an SPK recipient. And so they created three groups of patients for comparison's sake, the multi-organ transplant recipient with one of those kidneys the kidney alone or SPK recipient of the second kidney. And then the third group was the kidney alone patients who were next on the list but didn't get that transplant. And so they identified over 7,300 multi-organ transplant recipients who received a kidney from a donor whose contralateral kidney was used in a kidney alone or SPK recipient, not surprisingly, because multi-organ transplants tend to be higher donor quality. We saw the same here, median age of 32 and a median KDPI of 28%. The multi-organ transplant recipients were more likely to be male, white, older, a smaller proportion were in pediatric age range. They were less likely to be sensitized and more likely to come from a zip code with a higher median income. And at the time of offer, 82% of those who missed out on that kidney transplant had been on dialysis for a median of 1,700 days compared to 54% of multi-organ transplants, transplant recipients who had been a, who had, had a median of 130 days of dialysis, so pretty significant disparity. Following the offer allocated to a higher prioritized multi-organ transplant candidate, 67% of the next sequential candidate or that third person that didn't get that kidney later received a kidney transplant, but 10.5% died on the wait list and another 18% were removed from the wait list after becoming too sick for transplant. And for those who were subsequently transplanted with a kidney alone on a subsequent offer, the kidney, kidney quality tended to be lower. Compared to those who got the kidney alone, those who missed out on that transplant had a 55% higher hazard of mortality, and multi-organ recipients had 56% higher hazard of mortality. So in this study, obviously, there are a number of limitations, particularly in a study that spans from 2002 to 2017 and includes a number of iterations of allocation policy changes and secular trends in transplant practices. Um, And there's also the lack of granularity about the decision-making process for accepting or declining. Um, But they did do a number of sensitivity analyses. And I think that the data or sort of the conclusions that you can draw from this are are relatively robust. 
Um, but I think the strength, the real strength of this paper is that it really requires us to think about what our priorities are as a society in terms of who should get a claim to priority and allocation. And in my mind, it also highlights the fact that we have a pretty jumbled landscape of regulations and policies that lack any sort of cohesive harmony or theme. So SBKs aside, multi-organ transplants are generally excluded from the same outcomes scrutiny that occurs for single-organ transplant. There's a lack of standardized criteria for the use in kidney in multi-organ transplants, except until recently in the case of simultaneous liver kidney. And OPO metrics that are going into effect are going to promote greater use of multi-organ transplants. Um, to increase their number of organs transplanted per donor. So I, I think it's sort of a, a lot of different competing interests. And, and the result is that the system, there's no cohesive theme here. And I think that does lead to a lot of challenges. And I, and I think that this paper nicely brings that up, that we really need to think about what it is that, that we want to prioritize. I don't want to preempt uh, our podcast in a few months, but there's a heart kidney paper coming out and, um, they refer to this paper and, and it almost is accusatory, like, listen, we need these kidneys. But when you look at this paper and you reflect on it, you realize that what you just said, it's it's kind of a mess. And it's just, um, you know, the development of policies and, and, you know, it is a fabric and it's just kind of all jumbled together. You know, it's like some bad weaving tapestry that your mother, well, my mother would make, not your mother, but my mother was like, you know, doing these art projects and you'd go, hmm, that's interesting. Thanks, mom. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't know necessarily the, the next steps from a policy perspective, you know, as we struggle through, you know, this came out during, you know, COVID and um, dealing with the loss of deceased donation more, less so than living donation and and, you know, and now trying to struggle through um, getting everything back online. I don't know, Josh, you're a you're a liver guy that sees quite a bit of kidney. Yeah, yeah, it's really complex, um, and it's a, a little bit of a tug, a tug of war sometimes with this situation. I don't have the you know the real right answer other than to continue to try to provide equity in multi-organ versus using those organs for for kidney alone. Yeah, I I don't. I, I think that it just, this is one of those things that needs to be open and transparent in the transplant community and in governing boards to continue to refine this um, in a better way. Um, the other thing too, is always that comes up with these transplants is that that, that the outcomes, you know, the, that we're beholden to really, when you do a multi-organ, where do they go? They don't really go anywhere, right? So that's always the elephant in the room is uh, trying to track outcomes of these patients. And it's, uh, that's another, another thing that needs to be sorted out is a, a better way to, to uh, you know, kind of track these and the uh, multi-organ transplants and their outcomes and have some, some um, you know, understanding how they do compared to other patients. So, yeah, no, it's, I, this is a nice paper though. I thought it was, Definitely, um, but yeah, and I, I, I will be interested to see when the when the additional multi organ papers come out. Like you said, Roz, is mm -hmm. how that you know balances against something like this. And, and you know, I think, um, and this happened before. I they were working on this when I was you know got here, so this wasn't me getting involved in this other than very superficially. But I, you know, I thought it was a great idea to sort of say what happens to the person you leave behind, sort of you know because. Soldiers never leave their 
loved ones behind, you know, their, their teammates, they always get, bring them out from wherever the heck they are. So mm-hmm. I was disturbed by the death on the waiting list too. That really, you know, prop bothered me quite a bit. And again, you know, I, I think it's important to be open and transparent. I don't know if, you know, patients are really aware of this because they're, you know, they don't know they're the next one up. We do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great point. These patients need these kidneys too. And I think, you know, at least with SLKs, we have some objective metrics and criteria. We have the safety net in place. So mm-hmm. if a patient needs one after the fact, they can get it. Um, but I think that sort of the lack of, of a standard criteria really is problematic. I forgot about the safety net. I think that's Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it, this this liver kidney and the safety net is seems to be working reasonably well. I mean, it's not perfect, but other multi-organs can sort of adopt something similar as we move on. It's a, it's a step forward, definitely. Absolutely. No, I don't think anything can be perfect, but at least it's transparent. Yeah. All right, great. Well, on the COVID-19. Absolutely. I know you've all been, but I actually have to say that over the last week and a half or two weeks, individuals have been reaching out to me and saying, Hey, we're, where do things stand with COVID? So this is Goff et al. from the OPTN um, providing uh, a landscape paper regarding the pandemic and uh, deceased and living donor practices. Through the pandemic, I'd point out to the readers that this uh, submission occurred um, initially in July, was revised in October, and that the pandemic was established on March 13th. And this report includes pre-pandemic review of data of all solid organs from January 5th and includes up to September 5th. So that kind of gives you a sort of a sense of the the landscape. Uh, I'll kind of cut to the um, important parts figure by figure. The methodologies are fairly obvious because this is the registry. The waitlist registrations, as you can imagine, fell dramatically right after the pandemic occurred throughout all organs, throughout all regions, very much in a similar time pattern um, with sort of a peak in April. You know, you can actually almost see a decline happening in February, but the big drops were from uh, March and, and April. And interestingly, it was across all regions. Again, I think reflecting the fact that none of us really knew what was coming. And um, many of us were on these calls and Zooms preparing for the worst some of whom actually were already dealing with the worst, like the Northwest initially, and then the Northeast. Figure three actually shows the inactivation. So recall that there was inactivation policies available, particularly in kidney. And when you look at the pattern of inactivations over that course, uh, inactivations almost doubled or, or went up by almost 65%, all due to COVID. So there was a COVID exclusion that you could avoid bringing patients in and enlisting them for COVID. Um, exclusion so that you didn't want to bring certain individuals in. Unfortunately, they can't tell you how those decisions were made. They were done center by center. And I can tell you that based on other work that I've done in, in re- reviewing and reflecting on COVID, the, the, the rationale for who was transplanted and who was inactivated in the kidney waiting list really differed. Organ recovery in figure four took a major dive during uh, April, but then it bounced back pretty quickly to pre-pandemic levels, I think that the causes of death were really not significantly different. Um, We could hypothesize there were more strokes, but there actually weren't. 
And obviously there was nobody with COVID that was included in that because those individuals were excluded. Um, figure six looks at all volumes and notes that the most, the hardest hit organ of all the organs recovered was the lung. Interestingly, uh, it dropped by almost two thirds. And there's another complicated figure on seven showing you again these regions. So if you remember going to the webpage, they had these geographic regions, some of which you go, oh, that's Northeast. Is New York in the mid-Atlantic? Is that Maryland? So you have to just sort of uh, look. Um, they give you the breakdown of the different centers uh, in one of the initial tables. And I think that when you sort of look at this, you know, this is, it, it, you know, this difficulty in, in getting donors, I think we all recall that, you know, in some centers like New York, which we watched every night, there was no ICU beds, there were no anesthesiologists, um, you couldn't get the donor coordinators in, I think, live on or the big OPO in New York, I don't want to call it live on New York, but they had hundreds of calls each day with deaths, none of whom were eligible. And even when they had a potential donor that was not COVID, it was very, very difficult. But thankfully, we were able to rebound. Uh, deceased donor transplants are, are first shown in figure eight. Um, when you look over time, kidneys fell about 45% from March to uh, early April. Lung fell dramatically by 70%, liver by 37%, and heart by 43%. And you can see some rebound. Um, again, they again show you uh, the differences in um, a geographic region, for example, on figure nine. And then they also look at medical necessity and, and were there any real drops. And there were some drops in medical urgency. I mean, even at the highest um, lung level, those volumes, that that those numbers fell over time. Interestingly, the one group that seemed preserved was the kidney transplant patients that were super highly sensitized, the 98 to 100%. I think when you think about that and you rationalize it, I know that many groups, including our own, preserve that opportunity, recognizing that in the calculus of things, individuals may never get another organ offer for months, years. Um, and so they, there was a commitment made to those individuals to get them off dialysis. Interestingly, discard rates didn't really change. They were about the same for all organs throughout the pandemic. And I want to note that there was um, some differences, I think I wrote down, in terms of um, the distance to hospital. Interestingly, we didn't have concentric circles then for kidney, at least, but they did for liver that volumes seem to really shift towards more locally accessible areas. Again, probably not a surprise. We weren't sending the chopper or the plane to go to other areas. There was a lot of reluctance by um, hospitals having outside teams. Remember, we didn't have great testing in March. We didn't have great access to testing in March. Neither did the OPOs. And I think we weren't sure if this was going to be you know, I mean, it's a, been a bad enough pandemic, but I think there was enough fear that people would would die, even triple the numbers that occurred. Um, and the whole thing of contact and physical contact was also an issue. I think one of the most significant changes was in live donation, both for liver and kidney. Um, and those are shown in the last couple of figures. I Figure 13 shows the combination both of uh, kidney on one side and liver on the other fell dramatically. I think the lowest was in the week of April 5th and April 11th, where there was almost no activity. Maybe one program or two were transplanting live donors. Uh, and again, they showed the geographic variations on figure 14. I think this was, again, a general consensus of not bringing healthy people into a hospital, not bringing them into the pandemic, not having living donors that were otherwise healthy, traveling across the country. People weren't getting on planes. Um, people were pretty scared. They wore their, well, they didn't know about masks, but 
But, you know, with all seriousness, I think individuals were really, really pretty nervous. And I think that that's the living donor piece is really sort of the last piece. It, it, it had not really rebounded. Um, and unfortunately, they don't show you the most recent data. So I actually looked at the most recent data today um, to indicate that um, there was a rebound in deceased donations. So our total overall transplant rates were really very similar to 2019 at, when, when all is said and done. But it was really the live donor that was affected that never came back up to its pre-pandemic level and still is not. Uh, if you look at live donor kidney today, it's still lagging a bit behind um, 2019 rates, but obviously well better than 2020 rates. And, and likewise, liver is back up. Um, deceased donations seem to be working really quite well and continues to work well. And I think many OPOs just continue to sort of slog through. There were some comments uh, made by Tim Pruitt in his editorial but also in this paper, noting that COVID had this massive broad impact with near cessation of the live donors, as I mentioned. And, you know, again, we had a fear of mortality of healthy people, our own mortality and bringing in patients that had multiple comorbidities, because it was very clear from the beginning that people that were dying were really quite sick. Underlying health was an issue. I think that the Northwest and the Northeast had the biggest drops. When you look at this paper, they point out by the OPTN that none of 1,400 donors in the, during the pandemic period tested positive for COVID. That was a policy requirement. And, you know, it was interesting that even with, you know, th there were a lot of different things that were going on and a lot of different mindsets. You know, who do you transplant? Who don't you? There wasn't a consistent consensus, although I think the I call them the vital organs, but the medically necessary organs like liver, lung and heart had more of a can do, let's go for it attitude if they had the resources. And because the pandemic, when you look at these geographic variations, is so all over the place and it doesn't even fit, you know, like when we think of Texas or when Nebraska had its wave, these numbers don't jive. And so I think that this has been a struggle for the scientific registry and for these transplant metrics that it's there's not a statistically valid way to use our conventional metrics, and, and hence they were sort of suspended. They will come back online. Um, the SRTR has tried to create a consensus of how to make it fair, carving out a certain period of time. But I think this was really a major challenge. I think that the pandemic showed the best and the worst, but I think transplant was really had incredible resilience. I mean, I think through anything, we all felt very committed to our mission, and I hope that we moving forward, have maybe better tools to determine programs abilities and, and maybe relying on these old metrics. It's it's maybe this is the time to say enough and let's find some some other way to measure, you know, the greatness or goodness or badness of a program. Yeah, really well said, Roz. And summarized, I think um, you hit the nail on the head, which is once you have something as traumatic like this, it sort of makes you look at the system of what we're doing and opportunities for change or maybe trying to make something out of this that moves it forward where we wouldn't have previously. And um, yeah, I think the re the resilience part of our, of our transplant programs and clinicians and everybody that's involved was pretty amazing to actually be able to rebound that quickly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, there was a, that dip in April and in May, but I mean, I think we really rebound where the overall numbers of transplants were not so far down from the year before, I, I thought it was going to be just in the toilet. I mean, lung lung has a has a bit of a lasting, yeah, persistent yeah. effect. I won't I won't deny that. And the lung folks listening will say, "Wait a minute!" But about the lung, which I understand 
Um, but again, think where you were, you know, more than a year ago. I mean, you know, we didn't have masks. We were like, you know, do we have enough gowns? Do we have yeah. masks? You know, the testing issue was really super complicated. You know, we don't have enough testing because we don't have enough pipetters. We don't have enough people to pipette. So um, I think part of the rebound, I was interesting because, you know, the OPOs were sort of like over here and the, the centers are over here and everybody just sort of got their act together. I was mm. just... I still have to say, you know, watching the nightly news and seeing my old hometown, and I thought this is just never going to get better. And yet there were transplants going on in, in New York City. There were centers that were still able to transplant and be effective and, and save lives. So kudos to our field. It's pretty remarkable when you think, you know, thinking back to a year ago, it just seems like an eternity ago, especially as things are starting to open up and, you know, people are going out in public without masks again in a less contentious sort of way and more of a perhaps evidence-based way. And obviously, I think there's a lot that's been learned globally about sort of pandemic and disaster preparedness. But what do you think the the lessons are for transplant? Like, What, what should we do better next time? What should we do differently? What would we do the same? You know, I, I did think that we made some very, and I was part of that, you know, I, I think that we made some subjective, we intuited a lot and we did some things that, you know, I think we were just grasping at straws. And I mean, I remember talking to colleagues in Italy and like, like the first week of March, we were trying to plan disaster plan for dialysis in our own center. And I was like the only one that knew how to do acute PD because I trained and I'm the oldest. So, you know, and then figuring out what fluid and, and sort of, and which ended up being an inevitable in New York that they had to in some sites, but, you know, maybe the rationale of just sort of being more evidence-based, I think we use a lot of subjective kind of heartfelt, I mean, not bad. I mean, nobody like, I think was affected deeply. Maybe they were, but not to the extent where like, oh, that was a bad decision. Like some centers were doing preemptive patients. They felt let's bring them in. Let's get them done. If they're on the deceased donor list, get them out the list. Other people like us, we were like, well, maybe we should inactivate that person. They're doing well. I wish we had had more consistency. I think I spent a lot of time talking to people instead of getting my lap open. And and we spent a lot of, I mean, seriously, we spent a lot of time talking, like getting all these hydroxychloroquine papers. How many conversations did I have about CNI? Yes or no? Because I do CNI research. What do you think, Dr. Mann, about CNI? I'm like, ah, you know, is it going to prevent viral ACE inhibitors? I mean, think of the things, oh, I take non-steroidals. Am I going to be more susceptible? And what it came down to was like hand hygiene, masks, you know, and six feet, social distancing, so I wish we could go back and just sort of have a better reset of thinking more clearly and not getting hung up in some of these wild theories. Yeah, I, I don't really have busy, any uh, don't busy. lessons learned. It's I mean, we hope I hope this never happens again. But, you know, I do think the lessons are is to be as prepared as possible for anything in the future. I mean, uh, think about I think. When I think about the vaccine, it was it was basically ready to, to go when the, uh, it, uh, the the science has been developing the RNA vaccine over the last three years. We're very lucky that that was those vaccines were developed so that they could be put into clinical trials immediately. So I think it's preparedness and sort of thinking forward about future situations that we could be in that we need to you know be ready for. Um, and, and, and I think you know hospitals now are thinking more concretely like okay that air conditioning system in the or that's like there's a lot of humidity and mold they got it you know those things the infrastructure is really yeah. critical in the hospital and i think 
people learned here very quickly because they were putting up these tents and these reverse isolation rooms. We lost our we lost our transplant floor to, to COVID, so we removed somewhere else and they had to put this external thing you were always climbing over. But I but I do think now that hospitals, okay, besides the bottom line, um, are really thinking strategically about how buildings are built if they're not gone up yet, and then how to maximize, you know, getting some of these things fixed that they said, oh yeah, yeah, we'll take care of it. And then suddenly they were in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, well, we can't fix it. We can't get anybody to come in. So, and that's, I think another lesson is just being, being ready. And, and I do think it is amazing. Um, and I think we'll never forget it. And, and um, I think as a field, we'll at least have some sense of what to do perhaps the next time. And thankfully it wasn't like one of these, you know, you walk into the room, like what was that one, that pandemic movie with Matt Damon, you walk in the room and you're dead, you yeah. know, yeah, <laughs> but that's all I kept thinking about. And yes, I could have. I mean, but but it, it, it again, you just had that sort of eerie feeling like these microbes are out there and they're going to catch you. So, listen, we've talked a lot. Josh, yes. what about all COVID? right? Time yeah, for a about COVID. We could have like a whole COVID chat session. Time for the muse. Right. Uh, the muse. Yeah. So this um, this will be quick. Um, I'll try to make it quick because it's a very dense paper. And just as everyone knows, I'm not a basic scientist, but I, I, I think it was really well written and, and explained and described that I could understand the rationale for doing this study and the clinical implications. So this is a group in Tokyo, Shono et al. essentially had been looking at this cell population that are called MUSE cells, which are multi-lineage differentiating stress-enduring cells, so M-U-S-E. And they're basically pluripotent like stem cells that have interesting properties. And really their main property is being able to home to sites of uh, damage and inflammation and, and involved in the they're involved in the repair process. So all of us have some of these cells floating around that are really respond when there's an injury uh, to whatever tissue or organ. And so the model that they're testing here is actually a post-partial liver transplant model where we know that one of the biggest issues with doing living donor liver transplantation is if you put a too small of a, of a piece of the uh, donor into a recipient, they get something, they can get something called small for size syndrome, which can be a real problem in the post-operative phase and sometimes leads to death, not very commonly, because I think a lot of surgeons and all of us kind of recognize this early and try to do some manipulations to the to the liver to try to reduce this injury. But essentially what happens is that there's too small of a, of a donor piece and there's portal hypertension and the sinusoids in the liver um, undergo or have a kind of a shear stress from too much flow in and too little flow out. And if your graph weight, graph recipient weight ratio is appropriate, the liver size will accommodate this increased flow. But if it's too small, it won't. And we'll have early allograft dysfunction and all these measures taken to deal with it, such as shunts and splenectomy. They do work, but it is uh, costly, a lot of morbidity involved. So the idea here, uh, this group developed these, um, testing these muse cells in a small for size syndrome model, in a, in a rat model for potential future clinical applications. And so what they did is they did transplants um, in rats where they did a 20% liver graft, which is actually 
smaller, that would never, uh, human patients would never survive at 20% in general without some type of major shunt manipulation. Um, so they recognize this is, they're trying to test out the, the most challenging situation, which is a very small liver graft into a recipient. And they had five groups of rats vehicle, which was just saline. They used controls of um, bone marrow MSCs because some of them have muse cells in them. And there's been some interest in using MSCs in, in these clinical situations. And they also had this uh, muse cell group and then a hepatocyte growth factor knockout model, which was which provided some interesting results as to the, the pathogenesis. And basically, they did these transplants and infused the cells within about, about two and a half hours after portal reflow once the surgery was done. And they're infused into the penile vein, so they're systemic. And um, they basically tested the liver function. They did all sorts of immunohistochemistry and assessments of the graft function of the liver and did all kinds of sort of some functional testing to see if the muse cells were doing anything in the small for size syndrome compared to the other groups. And so what they found was that uh, I think the probably the first thing is sort of their their liver function. There are two there are two measures. One is called an ICG PDR, which is an indicator. I forget what it is. It's a uh, what it stands for, but it it's basically um, a liver function test, a dynamic liver function test, and those. That was significantly improved with the use with the muse cell arm compared to the others. And also the AST and the ALT were significantly lower in the muse group compared to the others. And then they did some testing I have to move along. This is a very involved paper, but looked at the sinusoids themselves and did really elaborate 3D imaging of the sinusoids and found that and looked at sort of the disruption of the sinusoids versus continuity, which is good. If it's disrupted, it means it's sort of in disarray and undergoing a lot of shear stress. And they found that the Muse group had a protection against this shear stress and that the number of interrupted sinusoids or the, alternatively the continuous sinusoid surface area was much better in the Muse group compared to the others. Then they kind of looked at some of the, um, the mechanisms and they had a knockout of um, HGF and VEGF and found out that when you knock this out and you did the muse cells that they no longer had this protective effect and which comes back to the fact that these muse cells are in, are involved. Uh, one of the mechanisms is the production of growth factors that can are involved in the repair process. So ultimately, what does this mean? Um, I think, you know, again, this is a Rat model is a very small graft that was probably a lot lower, even in a small for size syndrome in, in human transplant. But um, these these mu cells do seem to. Um, oh, and the other thing that they do is they they found that they home to the liver graft um, when they when they looked at them systemically. They found that they ended up in the liver because that's the area where there's injury. So they're not just going everywhere; they're actually going right to the injured organ. So. It really does show that these cells seem to be protective, that they can sort of ameliorate some of the shear stress that is occurring or the damage that's occurring from the shear stress, probably through the HGF and VEGF. And it seems like if you give this really early, because this is where 
the injury occurs, it's you're putting in a graft and the portal hypertension and the shear stress occurs really soon. It seems like the earlier you do this, the better um, outcome you'll have. I, I don't know how this would translate into a clinical application or, or, or where that is now, because it's obviously in an animal model, but you could foresee the ability to, the idea here was that you could potentially use smaller pieces from a healthy donor, um, which would improve the donor operation and make it more of a an, an operation that's more acceptable than what it is now, which is, um, again, about a 40 percent hepatectomy. And so perhaps you could use a smaller piece of the donor, maybe even a left lobe um, for um, for adults, which is done in some places, but usually smaller recipients. So you can maybe expand living donor liver transplantation this way if these cells were really truly protective. There's a nice paper uh, editorial from uh, this group in Barcelona that had, I think the best part of it was this figure one in the editorial that has a muse cell in the center and all the different things it does. Um, I certainly learned a lot. I wasn't even aware of this cell population. Really made me think about, it was very clear that it was having positive effects in this in this type of transplant and made me think about other applications too of, of injured organs and the potential to use these cells in, in that matter. So I thought very cool. You know, I, the future, we'll, we'll see if the, these types of things can be translated to human transplantation. I think it's fascinating that these are human-derived cells in a rat model. I find yes. that fascinating. Yeah. They're not that, rejected. I mean, it's absolutely astounding to me that, that's, that's, that it works. And I just wonder if you had other, I'm sure other people have looked at other injuries, maybe different models. I mean, it's hard in the kidney because you don't regenerate like you do a liver. They mentioned, um, I didn't look them up yet, but they mentioned um, one of the, uh, there's been some clinical trial testing, I think in myocardial infarction, which makes a lot yeah, of sense, right? you know, um, to clean up um, injury and decrease, you know, scar, cardiac scar, mm -hmm. essentially. So, I mean, this really had a very future forward looking feel for me, um, again, not just in this setting, which was uh, very close to home, but other settings too. Mm -hmm. So I, hopefully we'll see more of this in, in transplantation. They even had deceased donor liver transplant implications too. I mean, they focus on, on the living. Yeah, sure. I could, certainly could imagine marginal grafts or donors. Now that we're flying uh, all over the country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> all right, well, I think we'll wrap it up. So, um, Babak, thank you for, for uh, joining us this year. Um, nice. We That's really great. enjoyed having you and, we're going to regroup in July with a new group of uh, fellows for next year. And I uh, hope everybody has a good June. You and go uh, see everybody at the ATC in a week and a half uh, by, by Zoom. But right. But for the last time. For the it last should, time. It should, time I hope so. It should be really good, though. The program looks outstanding. So I'm, I'm excited for it. Awesome. All right. Thank you, guys. Right. Thank you, guys. Take care. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT Highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.